All Joe has to do is stand up and give me a nod, and that means I have the prayer. So watch it if he nods to you. <laughs> I love this. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. I, I, that's so appropriate because I was thinking this morning how blessed we are to have this class where we care for each other and we support each other. Am I doing something wrong? No, it's just a little. <laughs> oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> but we really are, and, and I know all of us tell people that, and also Phil, because he hates attention brought to him. But I wish I had a dollar for every time we sing Phil's praises for what he brings to us because we all do love him and respect him so. So if we'll just bow our heads, please. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We do thank you that we can gather together in Christian love and have a tie that binds. Open our hearts, our ears, our minds. And God, help us to understand that we don't have to understand everything. That you are our God, and in you we trust. Help us to follow the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to always realize that we are all your children all over this world. Be with Phil as he brings us our lesson and be with those people who cannot be here today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Give this to Linda? Okay. Oh. I don't know why. Oh, I get paid for praying? being here. I've managed to empty out this section over here. I keep thinking if I keep teaching on the social principles, it, just, it may just be Linda and me. Yeah. Well, we, we are on uh, the third section, the social community. We're starting a new section today. Uh, we're moving more quickly, as we said. 
Um, so that those of you who are following along, you still have your book. You may have given up bringing your book a long time ago. Um, we're on page 35. This is the, actually the longest section, um, and uh, which might be really depressing to you. Think, oh my gosh, we took us four weeks to do four pages, and this one's 12. So how long is that going to take proportionally? Um, we're just going to do a week or so on this. So all we're going to do is try to. Um, Hit the highlights. We're not trying to pick, take up everything uh, in the social principles. Our task has been uh, one for many of us for the first time to find out that the United Methodist Church has a document called the Social Principles, which a lot of us didn't know, um, and some of us who knew that we had it didn't know what was in it, and so that's what we've been trying to do. So, if nothing else, it's just an introduction. Um, really, really long introduction, you might think. <laughs> um, but just to kind of let you know some of the things, and the reason, again, just to go back, I don't think we can go back too often, um, it's the United Methodist Church's attempt um, to try to be faithful uh, to the double love command, what we call the double love command in Scripture, right? Which is to, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's really easy to say over and over and over every week we should be loving our neighbor as ourselves, but what's that look like concretely? And one, one strategy is to say, y'all go figure that out. <laughs> um, and there, there's wisdom in that. I mean, there's wisdom in that. And at the end of the day, you do have to go figure it out. But the United Methodist Church has taken the risk of saying, we as a collective body, right, as a general conference, are taking the risk to try to give some guidance on some concrete ways that we think this might look for this day and age. And it's a, it's a living document in the sense that it changes. And so it's the best wisdom the United Methodist Church can come up with at any given time. Which means there's always going to be places where you disagree. Uh, there's always going to be places that you probably embrace it. And there's always going to be places where you just scratch your head. Right? For, because you're just not sure, maybe, why the United Methodist Church is weighing in on it at all. Fair enough. Okay? Uh, but that's, that's the risk. And at least most of us in this room have, for good or ill, um, hitched our wagon to this thing called the United Methodist Church. So here we are. And so um, we're just trying to figure out, like, here, here we are. Can we get some wisdom? Can we at least think through these matters together? So let me just call your attention to the first paragraph of this section called the social community. You recall that the first two sections that we've dealt with, the first one was the natural world, the second one was the nurturing community that deal, dealt primarily with, but not exclusively, with matters of the family. This is the social community. It's the largest section, and if you were to take up the Book of Resolutions, uh, the biggest chunk of the Book of Resolutions comes here as well. It's, I don't have the hard copy, but I know on my Kindle, it's uh, over, well over 100 pages of resolutions. Um, 
associated with the section. So it's, it's a lot, a lot of material, which is another reason why we're not going to like go in it in detail. It's just way, way, way too much. But I thought we would just look at, there's two resolutions that I want to look at today. Um, just because one might seem like a curiosity and the other one's just really hard to talk about. And you know, I can't resist talking about things that are really hard to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so pray for me. Um, but look, look at this first paragraph. And I'll read it. The rights and privileges a society bestows upon or withholds from those who comprise it indicate the relative esteem in which that society holds particular persons and groups or persons. Okay, The rights and privileges a society bestows upon or withholds upon those who <coughs> comprise it. Okay, Say something about relative esteem. We affirm all persons are equally valuable in the sight of God. So, if you walk out of here and you can't remember anything else I said, remember that. I don't think that's controversial. Okay? That, that's that's a, a principle, a social principle, that flows out of every human being is made in the image of God and is of infinite worth to God. Every single human being. Right? And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, who is my neighbor? Someone famously asked. And it turns out it's a lot of people that you'd rather not be your neighbor, right? So we affirm all persons are equally valuable in the sight of God. I don't think you'd probably find any United Methodist who doesn't believe that. The tricky part is what follows from that? Right? I mean, if we really think that's true, and I'm just not patting myself on the back this morning or every morning saying, well, I believe that. Every person is equally valuable in the sight of God. And what's that mean for my daily life, your daily life, our daily life together? And what's that mean if we're trying to bear witness to that in a society that at one level also says it believes that? Right? At least aspirationally, we're trying to live into that. What's that mean? Well, here's what it says. I'm just going to read one more or two more sentences. We therefore, right, if that's true, we therefore work towards societies in which each person's value is recognized, maintained, and strengthened. We support the basic rights of all persons to equal access to housing, education, communication, employment, medical care, legal redress of grievance, and physical protection. Okay. We work, we commit ourselves to work for societies that do that. Now again, that leaves lots of specifics open, but it's a social principle. It says this is what we ought to be doing, which takes us outside of this nice, warm, comfortable room here at Muncie. Right? It just does. Now, we may disagree for sure about the best ways of doing that. That's okay. That's a, that's a conversation worth having. Right? But that ought to be the touchstone. 
Right? If we disagree, I hope we're not disagreeing about what we're trying to do right? in doing this. And so that's what we're about. And, and so, it's not surprising, there are all kinds of sections then about the rights of different kinds of people. And so, rights of religious minorities, rights of children, rights of young people, rights of the aging, covering just about everybody, rights of women, rights of men, rights of immigrants, rights of persons with disabilities, right? And then it talks about you know, alcohol and tobacco and the sort of um, traditional positions on that in the United Methodist Church. Talks about medical experimentation, talks about uh, rural life and urban life, talks about sustainable agriculture, talks about urban and suburban life, talks about a lot of things in here. Okay, right to health care, organ transplant and donation, mental health, all these kinds of things. And one of the sections that it talks about that might that we might start at is on page 40, I think it is. Um, it has a section on genetic technology. Um, where it says, this is in the first paragraph, we welcome the use of genetic technology for meeting fundamental human needs for health and a safe environment. Goes on to say, we oppose the cloning of humans and the, and the genetic manipulation of the gender of an unborn child. Next, then it goes on to say that there needs to be safeguards against any action that might lead to abuse of, abuse of these technologies, including political or military ends. That talks about it's also against genetic therapies um, for eugenic choices. There's a whole lot to say about genetic technology. It clearly promises a lot of really good things. Um, what's interesting and something I learned this week, I mean, one of the reasons I love teaching this class is like I get to educate myself about all kinds of things I didn't know anything about. Um, that's one of the joys of being a teacher. Um, you can make it look like you're smart but just because like you're 15 minutes ahead of your students. <laughs> um, on a good day. <laughs> on a good day. Um, but if you, in the book of resolutions, if I can pull it up here real quick, um, when I was reading the book of resolutions that went with this section, I came across what seemed to me to be a curious resolution that I didn't know about. Um, it was passed in 2008, and here's, here's the name of the resolution. I'm getting there. It says, is entitled, wait for it, this is, sorry, my Kindle's not cooperating, well let me go backwards, here. It's a. It's It's about. Um, here we go. Repentance for support of eugenics. It's a, an official statement by the United Methodist Church. In repentance 
for support of eugenics. Now, I know a lot, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but if you don't know what eugenics is, um, it's a, it started off as a kind of pseudoscience um, around, I mean, you, EU, you know, means good, right? Uh, and genetics like, like good genes, right? And it had to do with the whole science around thinking about improving humans, um, which meant their sort of positive eugenics, which had to do with controlling um, human, it started off in animals, in, among animals, right? Breeding animals. How do you breed the best kinds of animals? And it didn't take very long before people thought, well, what about breeding better humans? Okay? And so positive eugenics was about encouraging the, the best human beings to marry and breed and make better children. And then neg negative eugenics, which came shortly after, was about sterilizing those that you don't want to breed. Okay? Um, and this, this went on not that long ago. Okay? Not that long ago. And what I learned, and what the Book of Resolutions is bold to recall is the history of the United Methodist Church's participation in the eugenics movement. Okay. Um, and so, let me just read you a couple paragraphs. Built into the idea of natural selection is a competition between the strong and the weak, between the fit and the unfit. Now listen to this. The eugenicists believed that this mechanism was thwarted, right? The sort of, right? This notion of the, uh, the strongest will survive. Eugenically, this mechanism was thwarted in the human race by charity, by people in churches who fed the poor and the weak so that they survived, thrived, and reproduced. So the churches were working against this. Ironically, as the eugenics movement came to the United States, the churches, especially the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians embraced it. And it goes on to talk about the specific ways in which this happened. This is at the beginning of the 20th century. In the 1920s, many Methodist preachers submitted their eugenics sermons to contests hosted by the American eugenics societies. So we were, United Methodist ministers and pastors were preaching eugenics sermons to their people and they were in competition with each other, right? There were national contests to see uh, by the American Eugenics Society. We had bishops on the American Eugenics Society. So around, where did this go as far as national policy? You know I'm a Hoosier, so I can read this with shame. Uh, Indiana passed the first forced sterilization law in 1907. Eventually, 33 states passed similar laws. Most used 
Harry Laughlin's model. Harry Laughlin was probably the guru of American eugenics okay, in, in this country. And he actually, um, from 19, uh, I think it's 1909, uh, 1909 to 1910 to 1939, he was the superintendent of a new, a new office in the government called the Eugenics Records Office. He was considered the expert to the Congressional Committee on Immigration. And he was largely responsible for developing the policies that vastly reduced the number of Jews, Slavs, Italians, and Russian people coming into the United States on the basics, basis of eugenics. And he wrote these laws and then wrote a template after Indiana because other states wanted to pass similar laws. So he wrote the template that almost every state that passed one. So eventually, 33 states passed similar laws. Most used Laughlin's model that provided for the sterilization of, and this is a quote, sterilization of feeble-minded, insane, criminalistic, epileptic, diseased, blind, deaf, deformed, and dependent, notice dependent people, including orphans, ne'er-do-wells, not sure how you'd figure out who that is, <laughs> tramps, homeless, and paupers, right, poor people. Forced sterilization of those people. That's half the population. Well. <laughs> Virginia passed in 1924 a sterilization law based on the Laughlin model and on the same day passed a law making marriage between a white person and a non-white person a felony. 33 U.S. states eventually passed laws authorizing sterilization of criminals, the mentally ill, the feeble-minded. Sterilization of the allegedly mentally ill continued into the 1970s, by which time over 60,000 Americans had been involuntarily sterilized. Over 60,000. Here's the chilling part. If that's not chilling enough. In 1933, Hitler's Nazi government used Laughlin's model law as the basis of sterilization that led to the sterilization of 350,000 people. Okay. You can take it a little bit further than that, too, if you want to. I bet we better not. <laughs> but go ahead. No. Yeah. Ooh. If you want to know more, I'm just trying to let you know. I mean, and so this is the story that this is telling. Um, and apologies for this has been slow coming, right? Uh, California did not repeal its law until '79, and in 1985, 20 states still had laws on their books that permitted the involuntary sterilization of so-called mentally retarded people. Okay? 1985. Okay? 
So here's, here's the last paragraph. This was adopted in 2008, this repentance statement. The United Methodist General Conference formally apologizes for Methodist leaders and Methodist bodies who in the past supported eugenics as sound science and sound theology. We lament the ways eugenics was used to justify the sterilization of persons deemed less worthy. That goes back to that statement, right? Everyone is worthy on God's sight. We lament that Methodist support of eugenics policies was used to keep persons of different races from marrying and forming legally recognized families. We are especially grieved that the politics of eugenics led to the extermination of millions of people by the Nazi government and continues today as so-called ethnic cleansing around the world. We urge United Methodist annual conferences to educate their members about eugenics and advocate for ethical uses of science. And so I am doing right now. Okay. So you might be surprised. I mean, I was surprised. I didn't know any of, I didn't know the United Methodist connection to that. Right? And the United Methodists aren't the only one, so it's, like, it's not like it's on us. Um, but if you're going to be out there and talk about genetic technology, you better talk about your own history with it. Right? Because don't think this couldn't happen again. Right? Don't think it couldn't happen again, that we look around and decide who's worthy of reproducing and who's not. It might look a little different next time. Um, but it's still there, okay? So, just wanted to throw that out there. That was the easy part. We said we're gonna talk about something hard. In the first section, in the first section, and here I wanna mainly do storytelling, um, it talks about rights of racial and ethnic persons says racism is the combination of the power to dominate by one race over other races and a value system that assumes that the dominant race is innately superior to the others. Racism includes both personal and institutional racism. And it goes on and there's a huge section in the um, in the resolutions about this I'm not going to read any of that. Um, but I do want us to think about what is sometimes called institutional racism and its effect long, long, long after policies and laws change. Right. Um, to be clear, we are not in the same place that we were in the 1940s, 1950s, and before. Um, Jim Crow is in many cases over, but the, the history of that is arguably still around. And it's, it's not easy to talk about. And the point is not, I wanna be clear, the point is not to make any one of us feel guilty. The question is, can we see more clearly our neighbors who were called to love and honor and respect, and maybe see a little bit of the world from their perspective as hard as that is. Okay. And so I just want to take one example, because that's all I've got to do is to tell just a little story um, in 10 minutes, just to kind of 
if you don't know the story, again, it's, it's a way of trying to remind ourselves of how complex these issues are once you step outside of Sunday school, right? I mean, I'll be glad when I get back to talking about scripture. <laughs> um, honestly, I will. I'll be a lot more at home. Um, but, I mean, scripture is dangerous. I mean, loving your neighbor as yourself is dangerous once you realize what it actually means or what it might mean, what it might imply. Okay. In 1950, on the cover of Time magazine, there was a cover story um, that was entitled, A New Way of Life, for sale, A New Way of Life. And it talked about uh, the really famous developer, William Levitt. Some of you have heard of William Levitt. A lot of you probably haven't. But William Levitt was responsible um, for sort of redeveloping um, what were previously potato fields on Long Island into one of the, what began as suburbia in the United States. Okay, he really uh, set the model for what the suburban, uh, what suburbia would look like. And so he built these little starter homes, two bedrooms, one bath, access to an attic. Um, and he built thousands of them, thousands of them. Um, in what was known as, what's now known as Levittown, there were 17,500 of these. I mean, imagine a developer developing seven, almost 18,000 homes, these little starter homes, right? And he was able to do this. I mean, they, they cost just a little under $8,000 a piece. And he built these in the 50s, and it was intended for the huge number of people uh, coming back um, from the war and the sort of housing shortage, right? And so they were, um, he was able to do it financially because he was guaranteed low interest loans from the government to build these because there was a housing shortage. And so the government stepped in and said, we need to do something about the affordable housing shortage. So they gave him low interest loans and they also, for people who were buying the homes, no money down, and you had a guaranteed insured mortgage. Okay. Time Magazine talks all about this in this article in 1950. What the Time Magazine article doesn't tell you is that the requirements for the developer to get these low-income loans was that they could only be sold to Caucasians. And there were also restrictive covenants that they could not be rented or sold in the future to anyone other than white people. Okay. At this point, there were plenty of African Americans who could afford these homes. $8,000, they could have, and they wanted to, they tried. They were not allowed to. And this became the model for all kinds of suburban areas. About 85% of the suburbs around New York had these restrictive covenants and this kind of lending practice. Okay. 
um, it was quite open. All the all the manuals, the, the the loaning manuals for loaning officers had all the um, all the neighborhoods mapped, right? About where you could offer low income loans, and of course the African African American neighborhoods were coded red, which is where you get the term redlining for loans because. We didn't loan money there because they were apparently more dangerous loans, although there's no evidence that they were ever more risky than anyone else's loans. Right. And so the reason that's important is even though this was struck down in 1968 by the fair lending, uh, it, it had an effect. Right. This started in the 30s and 40s. Um, so for at least three decades, African Americans were cut out of any earning of equity in these suburban homes. And so today, when you look at the disparity, I mean, the disparity in income is one thing. The average income for an African American in the United States is about 60% of what it is for a white person. But it's the wealth gap that is staggering, right? The wealth gap. Um, for the, the, the wealth of an average African American is, the, we're talking about the median now because um, the median is about somewhere between about 5%, okay? They own about 5% of the median of a white person. And that's because in the median, about two-thirds of the wealth of white people is equity in your home. They, they weren't allowed, <laughs> most of them, for 30 or 40 years to get equity in their home. I mean, if, you, if they had bought that house for $8,000 in 1950, in, in 2015 dollars, that's about $75,000, right, as far as that, what it would have cost. But those homes are worth anywhere between $300,000 and a half a million dollars. So they could have invested $8,000 in 1950 and had anywhere up to a half a million dollars left in their equity. They didn't get a chance to do that. And this is, so yes, we got rid of that law in 1968, but its effects are still with us. Its effects are still with us. And when you don't have access to wealth, there's all kinds of things you can't do. We're not talking enormous amounts of wealth, we're just talking about enough wealth um, to send your kids to college, right? Um, to, to have enough to, to start a business, to uh, offer enrichment opportunities for your kids. Now again, we want to be clear, not every white person is wealthy, uh, not every African American is poor, so I understand that. But there, 
there was a systematic, the point is, it never has occurred to me in my life, right, that I could live, that I could live anywhere I want to if I had the money. It never occurred to me that there would be people who couldn't live somewhere even though they had the money. <laughs> but they couldn't. And because of that, they were cut out of the system that made wealth generation possible. And so it's not surprising that African Americans lag enormously in the amount of wealth that they have. In fact, one-fourth of every African Americans have zero or negative wealth. Okay. One-fourth. Okay, one out of every four African Americans in the United States has either zero or negative wealth. One out of ten Caucasians are in that. Okay. So there's quite a disparity there. And it's not about people being lazy, not working. Um, I mean, I grew, I grew up relatively poor, but I, I married well. <laughs> right? One of the saddest chapters of my life was when they were going to knock down every house within a square mile of us and build the largest industrial park in the country. Um, my, we, I told you before, we rented an old farmhouse for $100 a month. And my dad had saved up $6,000 because the house down the street, which was a beautiful split-level home, he, got, he bought it for a dollar. They said, you can have it for a dollar, but you got to move it. So he spent two years trying to find a piece of property that he could buy for $6,000 to have that house moved. We went down, we all picked out our bedrooms. We, we, we loved that house. He couldn't find anything. And so we watched him knock it down. Right? Um, but, like I say, I married well. Um, and my father-in-law worked his tail off, and so did his grandfather. And he was an entrepreneur, so he worked hard, there's no doubt about it. But he also had a certain kind of privilege that made it possible to generate wealth and pass it down to your children. So I could, I could send my kids to soccer camp. I could send my girls to ballet lessons. I could pay for a tutor when my son needed to score a certain uh, score on the uh, ACT so he could get into Davidson along with his soccer abilities. Right? He could take it multiple times. Right? That's a certain kind of privilege. Right, a certain kind of cushion. I, my wife was able to stay home and homeschool the kids for a while um, because we had a little cushion that we inherited, right? And so that made all kinds of things possible. So my kids went to good schools. So they worked hard, yeah. I worked hard when I was a kid too, but I never realized that in the race of life, I got a head start. Which means I didn't, I still worked hard, but I won a lot. And my kids are winning. But we got a head start on a lot of folks. Right? And I just have to admit that, as painful as it is. It, it wasn't just my hard work. It wasn't just my kids' hard work. It wasn't just my father-in-law's hard work. It wasn't just his father's hard work. Although it was. That was part of it. But it wasn't just that. And so 
So when people of color feels like the deck has been stacked against them, um, they're not entirely wrong, and, and the effects of that aren't entirely, haven't entirely disappeared. And once you realize that you don't have wealth, it has a trickle effect on all kinds of things, on education, criminal justice system, all kinds of other things that we could talk about. We don't have time to talk about that. But I just wanted to say, here's one chapter. It's a little bit like the eugenics chapter. It's a kind of sorry part of our history, and it's easy just to forget about it. This one still has real effects in our day to day. And it's not easy to fix. Like we can't fix it tomorrow. Um, but here's one of the things I'm wondering about as we close. And I don't have the answer. This is a dream. It's probably a silly dream. Um, but a lot of us are wondering, like, what's going to happen to our neighbors across the street? Right? This is going to be turned into a really, really nice place. And it's probably going to have some apartments in it. Right? I had some good friends in Indiana uh, at a church in an urban area. And one of the things they did was, next to their building was an abandoned public school. And the city gave them to it, gave them that property and said, if you'll do something with it, that helps the community. And so they created a development corporation, nonprofit, and they build mixed income apartments that they control the rent. So there are apartments that are below market value, there are apartments that are market value, and there are apartments that are above market value. And so the people who live in that apartment complex next to their church are of all classes. Why can't we do some of that over there? Right? Why do they, I mean, I don't know what we're gonna do with that. Maybe somebody's already thought of that, and I hope so. But I hope we don't just put just like really cushy people, just more gentrification and all the people can't afford to live anywhere downtown anymore because now, now we want to live downtown. For years, no one wanted to live downtown. But now that it's nice, we're going to push out all the people who lived here when it wasn't nice and tell them to go somewhere else. What would it mean for us? I mean, we stayed here because we thought our identity was wrapped up with this place across the street. Will we still continue to think that in the future? I don't know what the answer to that is, but there's a lot of smart people in this room and in this church and in this community. I hope we'll do something, not just wise, but beautiful, right? Creative, that says that all people are worthy. Um, I don't know, but I'm wondering, as I was reading about this and thinking about my own privilege, right, and the way I'm passing down privilege to my children. Um, how do I think about that as a Christian who says all people are worthy in God's sight? Let's pray. Gracious God, we it's easy for us to be um, discouraged and overwhelmed, and yet we know you go before us. We know your spirit is at work in the world. We know that in Christ you have reconciled all things and are making all things new, and we pray that you might teach us day by day what it means to live into our newness. Uh, may we have an imagination, um, the mind of Christ, 
that might help us to see our neighbors as you see them, uh, that might give us a heart for them, um, and that we might be animated not by guilt or shame, but we'd be animated by the joy of being part of your new creation. May we do what we can in our own small ways in our daily lives, things that may not seem dramatic most days. Give us eyes to see, give us hearts to care, and give us the courage uh, to do something that maybe by the world's eyes doesn't make a lot of sense. We pray this through Christ. Amen.